is turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 48. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then, a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter about 12 years old and she was dying. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that power had gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you just come this morning and fill this place? Meet us wherever we're at today and speak to us in a personal way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat, everyone. So as far as I can recall, the first time I ever lied to my parents, I think was in first or second grade, uh, as I say that, Gabe is like uh, intrigued. Um, and I think, it, I'm pretty sure it was over something seemingly small and inconsequential. Like I'd get home from school and my mom would ask me, how was school? To which I'd reply every time, it was good. And now as we know, as kids, you say good when the day was actually good, but you also say good when it was not good or if it was just like mediocre or even bad, right? And then my dad would get home and then he would be the one to ask me, did you finish your lunch? I was a scrawny kid, a super slow eater. And in our house, we were firmly taught, don't waste food, clean your plate. And so to my dad, I would reply, yeah, I did finish my lunch. But the truth was that I actually did not. Um, but the first time I was asked that, I replied with the truth. I said I did not finish my lunch, and then I was quickly scolded. And so from that point on, I knew that telling the truth does not get you out of trouble. And so to avoid the discomfort and the pain of punishment and the shame, uh, I resorted to the easy way out. Lie. Avoid the truth. Hide. As it turned out, this seemingly small and inconsequential fib was only the seed. It was just the beginning. Third grade was the first time we were sent progress reports. Um, like our grades were printed on, back then, this, this half sheet of paper and then sent home for us to, to show our parents, have them sign, and then bring back. I was never a stellar student, but I wasn't a bad student either. So in general, my grades would be fine. Um, my parents were firm, they expected my best effort, but they weren't like excessively strict either. Like my mom would actually be the one to care a little bit more about numbers and records. But my dad, bless him, would be like, B, that's still above average, right? I know not all parents think that way, um, but I would reply, yeah. And he'd be like, cool. And I'd be like, 
cool. <laughs> but every now and then I would bring home like a bad progress report. And seeing how they responded when I would not finish my lunch, uh, again, wanting to avoid wrath, I would proceed to forge my parents' signature. And it even got to the point where I was like practicing their signatures as if I was like training to be a counterfeiter or something. Um, but the key word here is practice. In the same way we practice a musical instrument, a craft, or a sport, I was essentially practicing lying and dishonesty. I was rehearsing the art of, of hiding and, and avoiding conflict or running away. And so, naturally, I got better at it. And I don't just mean forging signatures. Although I was pretty good at that too. As I got older, I would hide bigger things. Like I would rarely share about my personal life, although my mom would ask. I would cover up things like addiction to pornography. And my parents rarely knew what I did with my friends. Maybe this sounds like the story that you lived in your youth or the story you're living right now. I don't know. Um, now, I'm grateful to say that I've always had like a decently good relationship with my parents, but over time, again, naturally a barrier to, to openness, honesty, and, and closeness and vulnerability grew between us. And to be fair, as, as much as my parents tried to draw in close, as, as much as my mom asked questions ranging from, oh, how was your day, to how are things with your girlfriend? As much as my dad would want to set up time to talk, vulnerability was rarely, if ever, something they showed me. So, a couple of realizations. First, even though, like I said, we've got a good relationship that is getting better, the early seed for relational distance that grew between me and my parents when I was younger was shame. Second, shame does not go away on its own, unconfronted, and it does not go away on its own by our own efforts either. In fact, that's the lie that shame wants us to believe, that it will go away on its own, or, or that we can get rid of it on our own. There is no quick, simple self-improvement solution or technique. It's quite the contrary, actually. Shame over time worsens. It doesn't ever let up. And as we talked about last week, when the sensation or the feeling or the root cause of shame is unconfronted, when we brush it under the rug and when, when we don't process in a healthy way, it stealthily digs its claws deeper into us and it pollutes our lives in a really sneaky, hard-to-detect way. It distorts our stories and the stories of beauty, goodness, and joy that God wants to write in our lives. And since we're on the topic of relationships, either between us and our parents or between our friends and peers, our relationships, as it turns out, are a really good litmus test for the fear of vulnerability and the presence of shame in our lives. Like, we all have friends with whom we're willing to go this deep, but not that deep. We'll talk about certain things, but not those things. Sports, but not feelings. Hobbies and interests, but not struggles and wounds. Church, but not Jesus. Faith, but not doubt. You get the idea. And woven into these barriers and feelings are, are messages like, well, if I talked about that, or if we went there, or if I brought that up, things would get really weird between us. I don't want it. We just don't talk about that. We're close, but, or our relationship has been one way for so long, it would be really, really uncomfortable to rock the boat now. She doesn't go there, so I don't either. It's mutual. In other words, 
we've avoided vulnerability for so long, it would be weird to start now. Or, rephrased, we've practiced or rehearsed avoiding vulnerability for so long, it is now the norm. And suddenly, our friend, shame, is exposed. As it turns out, shame has been that hidden third wheel in our relationships all along. Shame keeps us afraid of being fully known. And this is tied to the third realization. Vulnerability is a two-way street. It's something that requires both parties in a relationship to step into. It's something that is co-created. As I said earlier, while my parents wanted to know what was going on in my life, from whether or not I finished my lunch and got decent grades in elementary school to how my relationships were going later on in life, very little was disclosed on their end. And I don't say this to fault them. This was just the practiced norm in our household. Maybe the same is true for you too. Maybe it isn't. Um, Now, if you're thinking to yourself, man, this is a long intro story. Um, What does all of this have to do with a man whose daughter is dying and a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years? You're right. It has been a long intro. I'm sorry. Uh, I promise we will get into today's passage, but we need to set up some context first. So today's talk will unfold in three parts. First, the origin of vulnerability. Part two, out of hiding. Part three, never alone. Let's begin. The origin of vulnerability. So over the past two weeks, we've been in our mini-series on shame, and one of the themes that's been floating around has been this. We were created for vulnerability. We were created for not just relationship, but the intimate relationship in which openness without fear of judgment, without the existence of insecurities or self-consciousness, without shame. Relationship in which vulnerability is normal. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. We read that last week. This is God's beautiful design. Our joy is directly linked to the degree to which we can be vulnerable. Like when we're around people with whom we can breathe, we can be ourselves, bear our hearts and our souls, we feel safe and free. We are happy. We're at peace. And the opposite is true. When we're around people for whom we feel like we always have to perform, say the right things, look and act the right way, avoid certain topics, we feel the opposite. We're not at peace. We're slightly anxious, and there is a relational wall. Now, we also know, as I said, vulnerability is a two-way street. So the question is, when it comes to us and God, who goes first? Like in the beginning, who takes the first step? One day, maybe, just maybe, we won't turn back to Genesis, but today is not that day. We're talking origins here, so we need to go back to Genesis 1. Um, Let's actually, I think it'll be on the screen, let's read it together. One, two, three. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Lovely. Now, oftentimes when, um, when we decide to read our Bibles, especially if spending time in Scripture is like not the norm or if it's not a habit for us, our first thought is usually, okay, so how does this apply to my life? 
And that's not a bad thing, really. Um, but in a lot of cases, it's jumping the gun just a little bit. Now, if, if Bible reading is more regular for you, then maybe your first questions are, okay, what's the historical context here? Who's the intended audience? What is the genre of the text I'm reading? Perhaps a less common question is, well, what's God feeling here? Like we feel happy, sad, anger, longing, the whole range, because God feels the whole range. It's part of what it means to be created in his image. We have emotions because God has emotions. And so let's ask that question. What is God feeling here in Genesis? Well, if we jump ahead to verse 31, God looks at all that he's made and he declares that it is very good. So he's pleased. There's joy. But what is he feeling right around verse 26, right before he declares, let us make man in our image? Well, what do we feel every time we take a step deeper into relationship, whether it's deciding to be someone's friend, sharing something you've been holding inside with someone, asking someone out, asking for someone's hand in marriage. Deep down, we know that there's risk involved. When Amanda and I decided to enter into a romantic relationship with each other, and then marriage, we knew that there would be a lot of joy, but also a lot of pain. We would show each other a lot of love, but we would also hurt each other. It was a risky move. So if you think about it, deciding to create humans was a risky move. As Dr. Kurt Thompson puts it, God put himself in harm's way simply by making us. Deciding to share his world with us, to want us to be a part of it with him, enjoying it, co-creating goodness and beauty with him was an act of vulnerability. Especially because he knew we would bring him pain and sadness right from the start. The opening pages of scripture, friends, tells us that God was vulnerable first. This is why vulnerability was intended to be a core part of us and the joy that we experience. Vulnerability opens us up to joy, wonder, and discovery. But it also puts us at risk for pain, rejection, and sadness. God was vulnerable first, but he also faced rejection first. Adam and Eve, by eating of the fruit, reject God. And that pattern continues throughout history. And now we can return to today's text. Verse 40, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there, was a, and there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling down at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, we're actually going to skip ahead to verse 51. And when Jesus came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but only sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Again, we see a vulnerable God. 
Jesus subjects himself to ridicule here. And this moment pales in comparison to the vulnerable act that Jesus does later, going to the cross. In the Roman world, crucifixion was not just a cruel and excruciatingly torturous way to execute someone. It was also intended to be the most humiliating method of execution, which was why it was only reserved for non-Roman citizens. The Apostle Paul summarizes the chosen vulnerability of Jesus like this in Philippians. He writes, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God always takes the first step, even when it comes to vulnerability. He makes the first move. The God of the Bible is a God of vulnerability. And as a result, being made in his image means we were created to enjoy and flourish in vulnerability. And as it turns out, it's also our pathway back to him our pathway to healing shame, and our pathway to joy. As we said, vulnerability is a two-way street, which leads us to part two, out of hiding. Back to Luke, verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by Anyone. Now, it's important to know that in Jewish culture, to have her condition to be hemorrhaging or, or bleeding constantly would have made her ceremonially unclean. This meant she was barred from the synagogue, which was a crucial part of Jewish community life. To be ill in this way would have also meant that she was viewed as cursed. So as a result, it's, it's likely that she was isolated and Lonely. In other words, she carried shame and she was alienated. So we need to bear in mind that this was all of the emotional baggage that she carried, not to mention her condition, when she decided to do something risky. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Oh, snap. Freeze, frame, pause it right there. Back in 2021, Marvel released a series titled What If? The show explores a series of potential what-if scenarios in the Marvel Universe. So I look at the passage here in Luke and I think, what if? Like, What if the woman decided to keep to herself rather than risk exposing herself by touching the hem of Jesus' cloak or even risk the disappointment of trying to receive healing only to have it end in failure like all the other failed attempts? If we rewind to the beginning of the passage, what if Jairus decided not to ask Jesus to see his daughter and heal her? What if Jesus decided not to stop and ask who was it that touched me? What if he just decided to walk on? Hold that thought back to verse 45. Who was it that touched me? 
When all denied it, Peter said, Master, come on, the, the crowds are surrounding you and they're pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. What a moment. What a moment. What if the text read this way? But Jesus, someone touched, but Jesus said, someone touched me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she up and ran away. That is how it happened in Eden, after all. Adam and Eve sense God coming to find them, and they hide. Here in this passage, if that's what the woman decided to do instead, if that's the way things went, then shame would have been victorious yet again, as it was in Eden. But she doesn't. And there's a glorious progression here. Let's get back into it. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. It's a moment of exposure. This would be the moment where where shame would say, now you've been found out. Now you're exposed. Now everyone will see you. Now Jesus is going to be really upset with you. You're bothering him. He's on his way somewhere. He has better things to do than to heal you. You're not that important. You're not worth it. In that moment where shame would usually land its final blow, the woman stands her ground and acts. She came trembling. Where shame would have us hide, run away, self-isolate, she comes out of hiding. She's trembling, so she's clearly afraid. But instead of giving in to fear, she steps out in faith. Her actions remind us that it's okay to be afraid, but our fear does not have to stop us. And falling down before him, she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So here, she lands her punches on shame, falling down. She's completely exposed now, declaring in the presence of all the people. She's not self-isolating, not retreating into the shadows, but declaring in public, surrounded by, by gazes and probably some looks of judgment and bewilderment. And she's healed but there's much more at play here. She's healed of her condition, yes, but that's not the only victory. Back to the what if. We know now that if the woman decided not to do the risky thing and touch Jesus, she would not have been healed. But what if Jesus never asked who touched him? Notice, Jesus asked a question. In the same way that God, in the garden, after the fruit was eaten, asks a question. Where are you? In both cases, God knows the answer. So why does he ask it? Could it be less a question of actual location 
and more an invitation. Who touched me? What if, after Peter says, Master, the crowds surround you and they're pressing in on you. What if Jesus were to say, Peter, you're right, let's go. If Jesus never asked that, and if the woman did not respond, coming out of hiding, trembling, and declaring in front of everyone what had happened, she might be healed still of her, of her bleeding, but shame still would have won. Shame still would have won. But here it doesn't. Jesus, by asking the question, draws her out. He invites her out into the open. And as she responds by stepping out into that light, she lands the final death blow on shame. From that point on, she's free from the clutches of shame. No more hiding. By asking a question, God invites our response. He gives us the opportunity to choose to fight shame. He gives us the opportunity to engage with him and ultimately come to him. It's relational. By asking a question, God is making a move of relationship. We know it's relational because Jesus replies by calling her daughter. It's a really beautiful moment. God moves towards us in vulnerability. And when we respond with vulnerability, bold, risky vulnerability, relationship begins to be restored. Relationship begins to flourish and grow. Where the woman was once hidden, now she is known. Where there was fear, now there is love. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Vulnerability is a two-way street and God takes the first step. But we get back to him. We let him into our hearts. We find his healing touch through our own vulnerability. Thompson writes, In the story we tell as followers of Jesus, then, from its opening pages, we find vulnerability. First without shame, and then in the face of it. To be an essential aspect of God's posture toward us, and nothing short of a fundamental necessity for the healing of shame and the promotion of human flourishing. So vulnerability is how our shame is redeemed. He goes on, to be fully loved and to fully love requires that we are fully known. Absolute joy comes not just from my having some random joyful engagement with something or someone. Rather, absolute joy must eventually include my being completely Especially those parts that in subtle hidden ways have carried shame, often without my conscious awareness. This is the language of the new heaven and the new earth. Vulnerability, love, joy. This is what we were created for. We were made to be fully known and fully loved.
And you can't have one without the other. Now, the question is, if vulnerability is the pathway, how do we walk it? If that's the what, then what about the how? Part three, never alone. If you read the Gospels, something you'll notice with a lot of Jesus' healings is that more than just curing the condition or casting out the demon, what Jesus does restores that person to community. His healing becomes relational. After the Samaritan woman at the well spends time with Jesus, she is restored to community. When Jesus heals the leper, bear in mind that lepers at that time lived outside city walls, he restores that man to community. And it's what we see here. Now that the woman is healed of her bleeding, she can be declared ceremonially clean again, according to Jewish law, which meant that she could rejoin the community, rejoin her people. So not only does Jesus call her daughter, which is relational in and of itself, now she is restored to her community. Relationship is at the heart. So let's get full circle here. At the start of this sermon, I shared with you how I got better and better at lying and hiding from my parents by practice. We talked about how vulnerability is not the norm in most of, if not all of our relationships by practice. And as a result of practice and habit, shame remains hidden and embedded in our lives, controlling and rewriting our stories from the shadows. So how can we begin then to reclaim and to return to the stories of goodness and beauty that God intends. How can our shame be redeemed? And if vulnerability is the pathway, then how can we make it the norm? The same way. Practice. Hebrews 12 states, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. A cloud of witnesses. This passage reminds us of this key truth. We are not alone. We do not fight shame alone. We fight shame by practicing vulnerability in community. And when I say community, I, just, I don't just mean any group of people. The writer of Hebrews writes, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Community reminds us of truth. Community listens, walks alongside, partners with, but real community always brings us back to truth in love as defined by Jesus. This is what distinguishes real community from any other social group, be it your coworkers, or your school friends, or your gym friends. In community, vulnerability is welcomed with truth and love. When we are in community like this, 
We can practice vulnerability. We can share the deepest parts of ourselves. We can bear our hearts and our souls. We can confess our sins to each other without fear of judgment. And as we do so, our brothers and our sisters point us back to these truths. First, we are deeply loved by God. And we don't earn his love by merit or anything we do. His love is is just there. All we have to do is receive it. Second, he is pleased with us. And third, while shame wants us to believe that all of the dirt in our lives repels God, nothing is further from the truth. All of the dirt, all of the baggage in our lives actually attracts God. Our brokenness draws him closer to us. And with him, there is forgiveness, there is freedom, there is healing. This is truth. So to end, we return to our recurring theme. Vulnerability is a two-way street. And this is what we're going to practice this week. And let me just preface by saying that none of what I'm about to describe will feel natural. Just as outing herself in front of all the people in front of Jesus did not feel like the natural thing to do for the hemorrhaging woman. Hiding and giving in to shame is usually what feels natural. But we're here to fight that. So as we've been announcing for the past few weeks, we have community groups up and running. Uh, So if you're not plugged in and you would like to be, you are welcome. We would love to have you just Come talk to me or Amanda and we'll get you plugged in. But this is what we're going to practice in our groups this week. It's twofold. First, simply put, we're going to practice vulnerability. So just start by asking yourself, what would risky vulnerability look like for me? What would it look like for me to let people into something in my life that I've kept hidden? What is something in my life that I wish a brother or sister could walk alongside and navigate with me? Or if something as simple as asking for help isn't the norm for you, guys, how can I ask for help? Or if you have a sin pattern in your life that you've never shared with anyone, what if you shared that with someone? You could and should probably start with God. That's the easy place. But in your community groups this week, take a risk. Boldly take something to the group. Like the woman in the text, declare in the presence of the people. Fortunately, in this case, it's friends. But practice making yourself vulnerable in a space that is safe and welcoming and free of judgment. A place where the goal is to practice love. Now here's the second part. Practice encouragement. Practice sharing truth in love. In your community groups this week, someone, hopefully everyone, but we don't force people, hopefully someone will share something that they've never shared before. Something vulnerable. And when they do, first, listen. And listen with eye contact. Listen with body language that affirms and expresses your attention and presence. 
If you feel slight discomfort, fight the reaction towards shame. Resist the urge to like, look away or to just fidget awkwardly. And then, after you've listened, encourage. Encourage that brother or sister. Friend, brother, I feel you. I've been there myself. It's painful. Hey, man, we're with you. Sister, I know it's hard to believe sometimes, but remember, your worth is not dependent on X, Y, and Z. Sister, you are not alone. Speak truth. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are valued. You were created to be loved. You were created by a God who loves you unconditionally. You were created for joy. That is not your true self. You are enough. And he is enough for you. And so again, it's twofold. There's a back and forth exchange. Shame will try to derail both steps, the vulnerability and the response. It will feel uncomfortable sharing something vulnerable. And it will even feel uncomfortable responding with something encouraging and something of truth. Because these aren't really practiced norms for us. But take a step of bold, risky vulnerability. Respond with truth and love. This is how we co-create community. This is how we co-create community that fosters openness and being fully known as the norm. This is how we co-create communities that make space for love, real support, creativity, and joy. This is how we co-create communities in which no one is alone, no one is overlooked or unsupported, Communities in which we can be fully transparent. This is how we co-create communities that foster the love of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is how we co-create communities that, that mirror and hearken back to Eden. Communities that live in the reality of God's kingdom being here in part, but not quite in full. So friends... Let us have Eden here. Let us open ourselves to the ways of the kingdom here, now. Let's stand and pray. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you help us to be bold? Help us to be bold, to to do something risky like the hemorrhaging woman, like Jairus, like you, ultimately. Lord, gently invite us into a place of vulnerability where we can share our hearts, share our lives without being judged, without being evaluated, without meeting awkward silence or glares or, or ignorance. But Lord, let this be a space where we can step out 
and be welcomed and received with your love. Where we can share and then be met with your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.